Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi and this month I caught up with Sarah Hughes. So Sarah is our Chief Executive, but I'm very sad to say is moving on to become the new Chief Exec at MIND next month. And we chatted about how her perspective has shifted over the last six years, what's been impacting people's mental health in that time, and the work that we've been doing to fight for equality in mental health. Just to say that if you valued our work this year, we'd love your support to keep it going. Every donation makes a difference. You can give at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. Hope you enjoy. So, Sarah, welcome to the podcast for your very final time as our Chief Executive at the Centre. Thank you. I know. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to um, be speaking to you, especially Thea, but um, it it feels extraordinary uh, and weird that it's my last one. It is very weird. I mean, we might have you back on in the future, but you know, yes. you don't oh, charge I mean, us. Invite me back. <laughs> <laughs> we will. We will. Mates, mates. No, um, I'm I'm really happy to have you on here today, but it does feel very weird. Lots of mixed emotions. So we're speaking today because if anyone doesn't know, Sarah is um, very sadly leaving us at the centre. She's going on to be the chief executive of Mind, which is wonderful for Mind. It's wonderful for the mental health sector, but obviously we are really going to miss you, Sarah. So. This feels very strange, um, but I'm excited for the future. Um, but we just wanted to get you on today to really kind of look back a little bit, look forward, um, and and yeah, where we where we're we going in 2023. Thank you, Thea, for having me. I mean, the reality is is that you know being at the centre has been the most powerful experience of my career so far. So I'm I'm really keen to talk about it. I've got loads to say. Um, and I think that one of the things about uh, moving around the mental health sector is that you're never really far away from where you come from. And yeah. so in some ways, whilst I am moving to another organisation, of course, I also in some ways feel like I'm just crossing the corridor uh, and won't be far away. Um, and I'll be looking on at the centre, um, doing all sorts of fantastic things next year, probably with a little bit of, um, is it Green Eyed Monster? Yeah, it's green. Yes, it's green. Yes, always <laughs> green. <laughs> yeah, I think we definitely feel that too. And so without going into the cliches, you will always be a friend to the centre. We know that. And I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about. And we've had conversations in the past about kind of how you were when you came into the role, what you thought of the centre, what you thought of lots of things and, and how that's maybe shifted. Um, and so I was kind of just wondering if you wanted to talk us through a little bit about, yeah, the things that you've, a few of the things you've learned about while you've been with us well I mean oh my god I so whilst I've worked in mental health for it's actually nearly 33 years you don't look that old Sarah I know well thank you so much but I am it's a space cream uh I was going to say a brand then but I thought I better not um other brands are available other brands are available yes um I think the deal is is that um coming to the center uh, after spending, you know, the majority of my career uh, in service land, um, the centre was probably my biggest learning curve of all my jobs so far. And that includes, you know, going into a prison environment, that, that includes going into complex service provision. And the reason why is because I think I came into policy and research with a whole view of what it is 
So when you're in service land, uh, you think, and rightly so often, that that's all there is, right? That that's where the most important work is done. And, and that you live, I think, with a perpetual frustration that some of the things that you know in service land do not always appear in policy decisions yeah. and research. And I really felt the gap between the two was so significant. I thought, well, they can't even be on the same team, right? There, there must be something wrong here. And so when I arrived at the centre, I was really quickly taught a massive lesson about the complexity of our policy uh, structures, frameworks, how decisions are made, how research is used, uh, how long it takes to get to talk to the right people, what kind of aspects of research will make the difference for one politician versus another one. Um, I found out that you had to have a level of diplomacy that frankly anyone who knows me really well knows I don't have naturally. So I, I remember watching Andy having one of those early conversations about policy and looking at him thinking oh <laughs> that that's what it is because it was an absolutely beautiful lesson in saying some really tough things to really important people without being thrown out and yeah. I literally thought that is like a miracle now I'm in no way saying, therefore, policy and research is more important than service land or the other way around. What I really think is that they have to operate together. And the, the special thing at the centre, which I think makes us different from everywhere else, is that real depth of understanding, compassion, commitment to equity and social justice, a real truth-telling that is really founded in um, strong evidence that's both um, from lived experience that's our, you know, that our professional experts are able to look at both from a kind of specialist point of view but from an academic point of view. All of these things conspire to help us make sense of what happens in mental health. And so I came in thinking I knew it all and actually... <laughs> I didn't, funnily enough. And, <laughs> um, and so for the first year, I mean, let's face it, the first year for me was very much about making sure our organisation could survive because it had gone through such a lot of change. And so that was my job number one. And, you know, asking myself the question, the really deep question, are we still needed? Because I don't believe organisations should exist for organisation's sake, right? Yeah. So... Um, but very quickly, you know, you, you see the centre's value to the sector. And I was told really quickly why the, se uh, the centre was so important, not only to um, policy and research, but people in services. And of course, I knew that because I had read and implemented stuff that the centre had published. So, yeah, same. All of that. Yeah. So you <laughs> came to the centre knowing that, you know, there was this resource there was this kind of brain yeah. uh, that operated that we all deeply needed and so uh, I still uh, look back at those early conversations I had with Andy and others in the team going why can't we just say that 
why can't we just do this why are isn't our research saying this and um being told that you know it is much more complicated and um whilst we're not satisfied ever with the pace of change um because I don't think the centre is ever satisfied with the pace of change no I think the centre truly understands the intricacies of the policy world um why it's important to really translate evidence in a way that can be understood by everybody and that fundamentally takes time it it just does and so I learned a lot about that a lot about diplomacy and uh, a lot frankly about how incredibly difficult it is to particularly help politicians and decision makers make decisions based on what we see as really good sound evidence and so the other bit of learning was what what are the other factors around the table and some of that is about relationships some of that is about coalitions yeah. um, but relationships are key and the context that you're speaking into as well right like none of this is yeah. speaking into a social or political vacuum and obviously we've seen that recently with the budget in the middle of a cost of living crisis that yeah trying to work out yeah how we land our messages and and share the evidence in a way that will get understood and, and received i i've just spent a week with 60 feminists from all around the world uh and it was an extraordinary time i have to say um although uh, well i won't say what i was going to say um, <laughs> i was going to say they were all of the men were in trouble when i came back um but um so but in that week we talked a lot about you know how do we influence policy today? Because the truth is, the other thing that I've learned being at the centre now for six years is that when I arrived pre-pandemic, we could influence policy in a particular set of ways. Now, as we uh, are post-pandemic, we are um, post the murder of George Floyd. We are post um, some of the biggest challenges in terms of European policy with the war in Ukraine. Uh, well, not post, we're in the middle of it. Uh, and now we've got the cost of living crisis. So all of these things come together. And, and frankly, it means that we have to influence differently. But I don't think any of us have got those answers exactly yet, what that means, what that will look like. But what I know is at the centre is that whatever way we influence it's deeply embedded in those values but also deeply embedded in what will make the biggest difference uh, both immediately but also in the long term so you we always have that double track in mind yes we want to help people today but you know we're going to publish a report you will see that report by the time this podcast comes out but you know one of our reports is talking about you know what is what is the mental health and autism and learning disability sector going to look like in 10 years time so we always have to do both things and in some way also hold on to hope when all hope is lost because it's really easy right now to be despairing it's really easy to think, how the hell are we going to get out of this? But actually, the centre doesn't want to sit in that place of hopelessness, which is why we're so solution focused. Um, and that's not because we don't understand the complexity. It's because we understand the complexity. And I'd love to talk to you later about um, that hope. But I think as you were speaking, what came to mind is, you know, for, for me, how what I would say is that the centre is about its research, but it's research with passion and it's research with heart Mm. and it's research with hope 
um, we're not just kind of going, oh, poverty is bad. I wonder how that affects people's mental health from like a dispassionate place. We, you know, we're independent and we are thorough and we are not just kind of being, you know, led by whatever we think's going on. It's research based, but actually we we care and we really believe that um, certain things need to happen so that people are not struggling with their mental health. And we do have a vested interest in that. You know, we're coming from that value of of lived experience and bravery and courage. Um, you know, we're not just doing this for the lols. We're doing it no. because change needs to happen. You know, so this is not just kind of a dispassionate academic look at, at research and what's going on. It's it's with a purpose. Absolutely. And that that was the other thing that I think I assumed when I came in that policy and research uh, or as policy wonkery, as as I know people refer to it as, <laughs> I, I thought it was a kind of stale old business, to be honest. And uh, I thought that, you know, it was a lot of people that had, you know, that sat around just with that kind of academic lens, not really truly understanding. And that is just not what I found at the centre in any way. So, yes, we have got some of the most gifted academics, gifted thinkers, uh, I think that they're our version of Apple's genius bar, frankly. Yeah. Um, so I totally see that. But I also found a kind of level of passion that uh, I, I wasn't anticipating and a level of um, strident belief in the work that we were and still do uh, at a real kind of relentless, ruthless pursuit of transformation of you know making sure that people were going to get access to the best help at the right yeah. time and I think that alongside that as we've moved through some of the most difficult kind of years of everybody's life um it enabled us to really kind of strengthen our perspective and so you know we know that whilst we undertake a lot of you know research and you know we do a lot of the policy thinking we also know that so many other organizations are doing it too and our power I think as an independent organization that doesn't deliver services is to enable and to convene networks of people around central subjects so we're able to kind of convene people around poverty and we can convene people around you know inpatient beds uh, all of the things that people don't really know often what to do what other organizations and people with lived experience think and then what to do about it and of course the problem we're in now is not so much that we don't have the solutions it's a lot to do with that policy landscape piece and how we can build together a narrative that really achieves this ambition around uh, equality and mental health and um, I think at some point we have to replace equality with equity uh, because I think that equality in some ways leads us to a place of um, something that's probably not strong enough for what we need to see effectively. I'm going to pick you up on that now because we obviously talk a lot about mental health equality, equality in mental health, equity, etc, etc. And um, I think there's probably an assumption that I'm making that um, everyone knows what that means. And I certainly didn't when we started talking about it. So I'd yeah. love to know from from your perspective, how how you explain that when people yeah. are asking you what you're banging on about at the centre. Yeah, I mean, I think that I often just use the language of social justice, which is um, 
very much about, which comes from, I suppose, the fact that I am a feminist leader in a way. And so I do see um, all of the work that we are thinking about all of the time, uh, without doubt, has been underpinned by an issue of um, social determinants, uh, the political landscape, uh, and and so those things conspire, I think, to make people's lives very difficult. So we just take poverty as an example. You know, I, I gave a presentation this week to a group of um, third sector organisations, community groups, and it was a great uh, experience. I loved it, and the reason I loved it was because this group of people probably uh, hadn't seen a presentation quite like ours which is very hard hitting it's really kind of you know pushing an agenda that they may not have uh you know talked about or explored before so you know we say things like racism is toxic to people's mental health so if we could tomorrow literally eradicate racism literally eradicate poverty and give people safe homes we would see such a dramatic reduction in mental illness uh, that it's hard to understand why we don't just do that. You know, and it just feels really easy. Yeah. Of course, yeah. all of those things are fraught with so many other complications. And people's understanding of, you know, why uh, people are more vulnerable if they've got serious mental illness is still quite quite fragile in a way uh, and I and talking to to this group on Monday uh, a bunch of councillors you know uh, local authority councillors as well saying that look you see it in your local authority areas all the time that what people are coming to you for is help with their daily lives mm-hmm. and well we know that if we can intervene early enough or create the conditions for health, then we're we're doing something not only for the greater good of society, but frankly, we wouldn't be seeing uh, the numbers of ambulances outside A&E. We wouldn't be seeing inpatient beds filling up. Uh, we wouldn't be seeing people uh, going in for treatment for things that they could have had six months previously or ending yeah. up in A&E in a mental health crisis. And so yeah. it feels to us, that that's the challenge as we go into a time and we've been here before austerity forced the government and decision makers to make decisions that harmed us as a nation there is no two ways about it the evidence is really clear but we're still not in a place where we've really accepted that learning and this is not a party political point actually this is a point about how we get governments to turn the tide, uh, whatever side of the bench that they might be sitting on. Because actually we can't have, you know, lots of good prevention stuff without also having really good, you know, um, service delivery at the acute end as well. You know, so all of those things I accept, but we're in a place where we're making these binary decisions. And until we stop this binary perspective of we can fund that, but we can't fund this, it's it's tricky. Exactly. And, and also, we're obviously fully behind preventative support. And that's a feature of the report that you mentioned earlier on. Um, but 
it kind of feels sometimes that it's kind of like giving with one hand and taking with the other. So providing preventative support for adults or for young people is so, so crucial. But if on the other hand, you are taking, you know, housing out of the equation or um, putting very punitive behaviour policies in schools, you know, these these things don't add up, you know, and and we're not really going to see that change if we're not doing a, a genuinely holistic um you know that kind of mental health and policies approach no it just is literally that you know I have these conversations with uh external groups and we have you know we talk about what would it be like if people were not living in poverty and I saw um the other day that there is a pilot being uh, tested in Wales to give young people a minimum income for a period of time to help them transition out of school into employment and into their lives uh, and you know whilst we can't predict the outcomes of that research I imagine what we already know about those sorts of schemes that giving people the opportunity to make decisions in a connected supported way people make decisions that will enable them to thrive that's what people do and uh, so I think that what we also have to move away from is a kind of inbuilt cynicism about what people can will do if they're given an opportunity to transform their lives and I think that we've never really tested that idea you know certainly in my teenage years it was very much that social mobility and there was it was very much talked about we don't really talk about it as much today because social mobility demands investment Mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. when you you know when you are given that investment things happen you know I had all of my university fees paid can you imagine that all of them paid and I also got paid to live I mean I also worked 105 jobs but that was my choice <laughs> um, uh, but the, the fact is is that you know I I was given that opportunity and now that doesn't exist so we, even in that small way those levers when they're kind of pulled out of communities and uh we see the impact for decades to come and it's just that frustration I think I have with policy which is we've got the answers you know I know they're not the always the answers you want to hear but you know if we're saying the same thing uh every year for the last 40 years I mean maybe I don't know how else yeah. to say it but nonetheless it's still the same yeah, and I and I totally agree. And, and this it, it links back to what you said earlier about that frustration and how we hold that frustration at things not moving quick enough with the diplomacy to make progress, plus the hope to not kind of just sit in a despondent heap. And I mean, we've kind of touched on this already, but I was sort of thinking about the time you've been here, six years, and you know what you see has you know changed or developed or or shifted in the mental health arena since you joined us so I would definitely say pre-pandemic we were on like this epic roll right so we had the mental health act review uh that was led by Sir Simon Wesley we were involved in that work uh, I was astonished that some of the recommendations that came out well in fact all of the recommendations that came out of our group which was looking at autonomy were taken on board and committed to which was really uh, such a great feeling uh, that we knew that this legislation was going to fundamentally change people's experiences of uh, the mental health act so that that was just quite amazing and of course because of the pandemic we've effectively experienced a two-year stall 
on that. So uh, that's really a tough pill to swallow because, you know, all of that work is still there. We know it's going to happen. I mean, it is going to happen, but it, not in the time that we would have liked. And also now in a time when there is less money to implement all of the things that we wanted to implement. So pre-pandemic, yeah. all of the recommendations were possible because, you know, the country, uh, you know, was very kind of feeling like, yes, we can do this. We can make these investments and we can uh, see that they make sense. And mental health was a really clear top priority for the government. We also saw, you know, great progress in, you know, investment into some of the services that really do, you know, make tangible differences like individual placement support, a kind of national rollout. Uh, so we've seen all of that. So liaison diversion, you know, when I arrived, it was like 60 percent uh, in play. Right. And then pretty much pre pandemic, which was like two years and a bit on, uh, we uh, there was a virtually 100 percent coverage. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and directly related to much of the work that the centre had led on. So bearing that in mind, those things were really happening. And most of those things are still happening. So we've still got an investment into liaison diversion. We've still got that investment into individual placement support. Um, we've still got that promise for the Mental Health Act. But it's now complicated by all sorts of other things, all sorts of other factors, which is we really need to tackle the kind of advancing race equalities agenda and we've got a massive ally and leader and you know just genius in Jackie Dyer who's really motored on this work in a way that nobody else could have done actually I have to say it's her that's been able to kind of get through to the system uh, and so that work really comes up the agenda you know so so as we've gone through and we've seen health inequality not just appear as a result of the pandemic because it didn't just appear but I think we saw it in ways that we didn't see it before yeah and I think people who hadn't seen it before suddenly saw it and then there was this new commitment to saying okay actually we really have got to be serious about that so in, in a way uh, things are very different now to what they were pre-pandemic. They're different in terms of what some of the priorities are. So whilst the NHS have got the long-term plan, which is, you know, a, a ball that is rolling down that hill, uh, we've got the integrated care systems, which, you know, I do believe will give us the biggest chance at that integration that we want to see between health and care and the third sector and all of the stuff that we know makes a difference. Um, but we're all doing that during a time of significant transformation, significant pressure and uncertainty. So what I see happening is that kind of progress uh, stalling, then maybe a couple of steps back and then progress again. So in some ways, I think not all has been lost in terms of what we had before the pandemic, but I do think mental health is in a sort of tricky place of playing catch up because, you know, things have taken over or uh, making a case against a load of other cases that are being made about what people need. And so I think the only answer is really to join up with organisations who are really interested in that kind of advancing race equality and that equity piece to make sure that we're really motoring on that social determinants agenda. Because if anything, 
that is the thing that will make the biggest difference. That is the thing that we we need to focus on. But the pandemic is not entirely over. And I think that's the other thing, isn't it? People think, oh, the pandemic has gone. Um, yeah, and maybe the pandemic's not the right word for it, you know, because there is an epidemiological <laughs> stage probably we're in that's, uh, you know, technical. But nonetheless, you know, we've got inpatient wards that are, that are you know, have been set as COVID wards. We're set for a flu epidemic uh, if we don't get people in for their flu jabs. So it's there's a lot of competing tasks. And so coming back to that bit about what will make the biggest difference now, who will help us make that difference, and how can we work with them in a way that means we're partners not kind of throwing stones at each other, trying to kind of win a, um, you know, war of words. Yeah, 100%. It's that diplomacy piece again, isn't it? Which is definitely not my forte. Um, and I was reminded... Why we get on so well, Thea? But when you were speaking, I was reminded of uh, Barack Obama, who makes that point in, I think, his recent book where he was talking about progress. And he was saying, I mean, in political terms, but I think we're seeing it now as well, that, you know, progress isn't linear and you, you kind of take a massive step forward and you think, wow, it's amazing. We're doing so well. And then you get knocked back. And for us, that was the pandemic and some of the political turmoil that we've seen and a million other things. Um, and then, you know, but it's that it's that piece about hope, isn't it? And like yeah. that, that things will progress again and that all is not lost. All the work that's been done is not lost. But but as you say, choosing, um, prioritising the things that are going to make the biggest difference at what is a really tricky time for, for the country, really. And the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I would say is that I don't think we can ever underestimate the impact that the centre has uh, on the broader kind of landscape of mental health and care. One of the things that I've been very fortunate is that the centre, all of the people at the centre are pretty magic. So I was saying to somebody the other day that, you know, the thing about leaving the centre is not just leaving the centre as a kind of institution of brilliance, but also leaving the people, right? So that's that's tough because uh, I think I said it to you at our lovely time, development time that we had together all as a team, that when I came to the centre, it was you and Emma that had really taught me something about the way we spoke to each other. You know, sort of you, you two were really, I think at the forefront of our culture of the way in which we conduct ourselves and speak to each other and I really learned that from you I've really learned a load from you know Kadra who is like a you know well she's a walking brain because she carries her brain everywhere obviously she does um but she's got such a big uh, ability to yeah. think about all sorts of things that sometimes just don't occur to me uh you know Jan who uh is somebody who has taught me a lot about uh clarity you know so oh yeah world in gray right my world is gray and but but you but people who see everything like that need people who also can say well this bit is black and white and this bit I can see it's either that or it's this and yeah. Jan is one of the, those people and I absolutely love her for that um, and thank her for all of the support that she's given. And then Agnieszka, of course, our finance guru, who, you know, I have to say is 
and I don't want anyone to steal her. So when I'm saying this, I'm also reminded that Andy is probably sitting there looking at this, going, she's advertising our staff, basically. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Andy. But nonetheless, they are brilliant. <laughs> and let's go our finance person who just is able to help us think through big decisions in a very kind of straightforward way. And who, again, I always say to new people who come in, Yes, I'm the chief executive, but Igneshka says no, it's a no, right? Just let's be clear about that. Um, David, who we've got for research, uh, you know, Ed policy, M doing the uh, equally well, Zach doing our training. I mean, everybody in the organisation is one there because they want to be there. So there is no doubt they're there because their values align, that it makes sense to them. But they are also brilliant. And so I'm going to miss everybody a lot. And I know that um, it's going to take me a while to shake that off. But I'm, as I say, I am going to be only around the corner. And um, it turns out that me and Andy are going to be in a lot of the same meetings together. So probably I'm going to see him more now than I ever did before, which is totally fine by me. You're just um, moving chairs. That's all that's happening. I am just moving <laughs> chairs. Uh, but my time at the centre has been just magic, really has. It's not always been easy. And I've been challenged within an inch of my life at times, um, specifically around the diplomacy thing, I have to say. Um, but nonetheless, it has taught me an extraordinary amount. And if it wasn't for my time at the centre, there's no way I could have been chief exec at mine. So uh, they are interlinked. And obviously, we we did pay her a lot to say that, guys. All that nice yeah, stuff about yeah, us. Yeah. I don't think Emma and I were we were completely oblivious yeah, to the fact we were setting so culture. But kind to me. I mean, right back at you. But for me, I think you have brought such a passion and determination and urgency. And it's what you were saying about you've learned patience and bearing with the frustrating pace of change. But you have also given us that sense of urgency and boldness, which I'm so grateful for. Um, and I think what was a, this, we might not keep this in because it might just be me telling you I love you. Um, for me, <laughs> Sarah's gone. For me, um, what was so special is really early on, you shared a blog uh, with us on our website um, about your own lived experience. And that has always been really stood out to me um, as you know leading with vulnerability and leading out of lived experience as opposed to um, kind of keeping it at arm's length and so that's a really massive kind of legacy I think that you have left at the centre which I'm so grateful for. Yeah so you're right I am crying already. Oh I'm she's gone. Be crying literally for the next weeks. Um, yeah because in some ways I don't know another way of doing it I am a human being first and I see everybody as a human being first and then I see what their role is which sometimes gets me into trouble <laughs> if you don't but like someone if I don't yeah you know it's pretty dire um but I so I really do I really do think that um being able to share that and of course you have to be able to see that it's going to be received with care so I knew that it was going to be received and and looked after and you know, so when it went out there, the response was really interesting. I've never really uh, not told people, you know, so it's always been out there. But this mm -hmm. was a very kind of specific uh, outing statement. And I think it would be great to see more people in leadership positions to do that, um, partly because I think 
we want to be human beings. We need to lead as uh, compassionate individuals, but also we can't be afraid. And the reason why, um, I really do believe that the people that we work with uh, in mental health services and so on, they're carrying the risk. Mm -hmm. So they carry the risk in their lives every day of, you know, experiencing distress, not getting the help that they need, not being advocated for. So the risk in sharing our own experiences is really very small in relation to that risk. And so, uh, you know, I'm not kind of forcing colleagues to do that. And some people don't experience mental illness. Yeah, There are people out there. Um, but nonetheless, I think if you do, uh, creating that safe space to sort of talk about it and own it and and also it gave me a, a very public opportunity to say thank you to the people that had looked after me at my worst times and I know that uh, my CPN at the time uh, read it and and that she she really appreciated that so again you know we are we are supported to recover by uh, services and we mustn't forget that either yeah and as we've said you're vulnerability paves the way for other people to do the same and then we create a more um compassionate honest um workforce so that's the dream isn't it um Sarah thank you for today but thank you for everything it's been an absolute joy we are really excited to see um what the future holds and um to see you take mind from strength to strength and um, we will obviously be there supporting you all the way but thank you for everything thank you Thea hope you enjoyed this episode To join our fight for equality in mental health, you can donate at www.centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.